UC Berkeley is number four on accepted selectivity index. Its matriculating students post a stellar GMAT and GPA. They enjoy proximity to San Francisco and Silicon Valley, not to mention California weather. It sounds like a dream, but how do you get in? Well, let's ask Berkeley Haas's Executive Director of Full-Time MBA Admissions. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Accepted's founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Welcome to the 547th episode of Admission Straight Talk, Accepted's podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Before we join our wonderful guest, I have to mention something. You've seen the stats that most people have a great return on their MBA investment, but what about you? Are you going to see that return? We've created a free tool that will help you assess whether the MBA is likely to be a good investment for you individually. Just go to accepted.com slash MBA ROI calc, MBA ROI CALC, complete the quiz, and you'll not only get an assessment, but the opportunity to calculate your different scenarios. And again, it's all free. You can use the calculator at accepted.com slash MBA ROI calc, MBA ROI CLC to obtain your complimentary assessment. It gives me great pleasure to have back on Admissions Trade Talk, Eric Askins, Executive Director of Full-Time MBA Admissions at UC Berkeley Haas. Eric has a lot of experience in higher ed and admissions. He became the Senior Associate Director of Admissions at Haas in 2018 and assumed the role of Executive Director in 2020. Prior to coming to the left coast, he served in admissions at Fordham's Law and Business Schools and at the New School. Eric, welcome back to Admissions Straight Talk. Linda, thanks so much for having me back. Great to be my, here. My pleasure. Great to have you. Now, I'd like to start with some general questions about the Haas program and then move into more admissions-related questions. So to start, can you give an overview of the Haas full-time MBA program, focusing on the more distinctive elements for those listeners who are probably not that familiar with it? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, so here at the Haas School of Business, so let's start at the at the very top. We're located in beautiful Berkeley, California, just across the bay from uh, San Francisco, a uh, couple short minutes away from Silicon Valley. And really, what we often say is that we're at the heart of what's next. And what that means is that we're at the heart of innovation culture. You know, if you were to take the region that we're located in and put it in the context of global economies, uh, we are in the fifth largest economy in the world. And hopefully I don't offend any of you German listeners, but we are on track to overtake Germany to be the fourth largest economy in the Ooh. world, just in terms of all the activity that's happening. That's one of the things that makes Haas unique. Oftentimes we're seen from the lens of this is a school nestled in Berkeley, which is this amazing campus. Uh, there's a community, of uh, the Nobel Prize winners here, the inventions that come from here. But more than that, the focus is on how do people achieve their success while also making an impact on the world. Uh, I think one of those things that we kind of captured, this sort of the identity of the school is a little bit what you asked, was our defining leadership principles. I mean, this has been the core of how we talk about the school over the last, I think it was codified maybe 11, 12 years ago now. I was, um, I was just but, thinking that, yeah. yeah it's, it's, so over a decade, we've been talking about the school from the framework of these defining leadership principles. So what are they? They're a, a core philosophy that we have about what makes great leaders great leaders. And one of the things that makes you a Berkeley leader, one of these great leaders, 
is that you aren't pushing boundaries. You're questioning the status quo. You're developing a sense of confidence, but you're doing so without uh, pushing others to the side. You're focused on uh, always learning, always being a student. And beyond all things, that you're thinking beyond just yourself. And that's really captured in the community here. Right. I remember talking to your predecessor when those principles were codified. And yeah. I just was, I said, I was amazed at how well they really captured the ethos of, of UC Berkeley Haas and, um, and were so succinct and meaningful. I mean, you know, over the years, I've seen various branding changes at different schools. And sometimes I think they're very meaningful. And sometimes I think they're window dressing. Yeah. And I never thought, I, I was very impressed with the four, and I have continued to be impressed with the four defining principles at Haas. Linda, one of the things that's really spoken to us, you know, that it isn't simply a marketing window dressing or anything yes. along those lines. So when we made a big announcement about them, and then at the 10-year mark where I was already here, we made a sort of a, it's been a decade since we've we've launched these. We had some wonderful feedback, including from a, a Haas alum, I want to say a 1960s Haas alum, who said, these aren't new. We've been talking about these in some sense or another since way back when I was at the school. Wow. And we've got a lot of feedback from our alumni. I think we spoke uh, maybe more succinctly, but the concepts were always here. It's one of the reasons that the school has lasted. I don't know if you know this, we're in our 125th year. No, I didn't uh, know that. Haas. That's really yeah, impressive, is, yeah. We, uh, we celebrated our anniversary on September 13th where we, um, you know, this is a school founded founded by Cora Jane Flood, uh, one of the only business schools founded by a woman, especially 125 okay. years ago. And we've just been very proud of, of all that we've accomplished in those last uh, little bit. And, you know, we're looking towards the next 125. Well, congratulations. Happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked about Berkeley's past. What's new? Oh, well, this is always a great question to answer. So what's new? Now, if we were talking about what's new in the world today, I think you're going to find there's an, an, um, a connection to what's new at Berkeley Haas. So what's okay. new in the world today? What's new in the world today? Generative AI. Right. right? They're probably the number one topic here. You know, we, we often talk, especially when we talk about schools that have a, have a touch to the technology sector. You know, we, anybody who's been doing this long enough understands the technology sector has ebbs and flows. Right. You know, it, it peaks in one, it valleys in another period in time. But the next growth peak appears to be around generative AI. And it's one of the things that we've been working on for years. So actually, October 8th, I believe, just coming up, we have an AI summit. It's not our first AI summit. Uh, we've been doing this for a good long time. But what I love is that we are so connected that we've got the folks from IBM Watson. We've got the folks from Google. We've got the folks who are coming through to talk about what is happening in the world of AI today. The coursework has been there. The coursework will continue to be there. But that coursework has that Berkeley flavor, ethics and AI. It's one of the biggest courses that we have in this space right now. Mm -hmm. We need to be talking about that. And we have been. In fact, I won't plug too many things here because I don't want people Googling and all this stuff. But if you get a chance, our Center for Equity, Gender, and Leadership built a playbook in 2019, 2020, around ethics and AI. Right now, it's one of the most downloaded things on our website. One of the things about being on the cutting edge is sometimes you're talking about something before people are ready to hear it. So that's AI. But what else are we talking about? We're also talking about sustainability in business. Now, we have been, again, for several years. Dean Anna Harrison joined us in, uh, to in 2018. Uh, she came with three key initiatives. It was innovation, it was uh, inclusion, and it was sustainability. 
And I think that we've continued to hit on all those three topics, along with all the other things that we do. But within sustainability, I don't think there's another business school that's doing five topic areas within sustainability, including energy, including agriculture, including corporate accountability, real estate, and finance. And oftentimes when people think about sustainability, they, it's hard for them to what box do I what put is, What does finance have to do with it? Right. Uh, but uh, so we just, uh, sustainability and impact finance is one of the uh, courses that people are most interested within the sustainability sector here at Haas, exploring exactly what it means to invest in sustainable business and how to see that grow. You know, at the end of the day, the most powerful sustainability person in any organization is are their leaders. It's the CEO, it's the CFO. And we want to make sure that anybody who comes to our program is getting that level of exposure so that they can be tackling what is probably one of the greatest challenges in the world in front of us, which is climate change, which is how do we how do we grow and continue to thrive without harming the environment around us? And actually to go back and maybe sort of fix some of the damage that we've already done. Right. One of the things I noticed in preparing for our call today was something called the Applied Innovation Course Requirement at Haas. Sure. I don't remember that from the last time we spoke. Can you touch on that a little bit? Tell us, tell us sure. what it is. Absolutely. So uh, applied innovation is the language that we use to describe experiential learning. Uh, okay. We launched applied innovation coursework several, it might be two decades old now. We were one of the oh, first- Experiential teams. learning. I know it's been there for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just changed the name. Um, well, what we did is we focused a little bit on what it is it we actually want to come away with, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, you want to apply. You want to apply what you're learning and you want to apply it towards uh, growth and change. And within applied innovation, there's over 20 courses within that uh, subset. This is, a, you're required to take at least one, but I, I know students who've taken more than one. They've taken two. Some have taken three. Uh, this is a great place for you to test the hypothesis, right? A lot of the learning happens in the ivory tower, separated from business, and that's not what we're looking for here. We want to make sure that our students have the opportunity to go in market and test these ideas. And so you'll see that there's a variety of different courses within applied innovation. They include courses like international business development, where you have an opportunity to take a consulting project at a global scale. And that includes going in country to deliver your results, whether that means implementation, whether that means presentations to leadership, uh, that's part of that course. It's probably one of the most popular of our applied innovation courses, but then depending on where you're looking for, if you're in a niche market, you may find an applied innovation opportunity exists there for you as well. We've got clean tech to market that's focused on you know, bringing sustainable ideas into the marketplace with a technology focus, social sector solutions, uh, strategic and sustainable business solutions. You'll find a number of these across the gamut. And what they are is your opportunity to go do work within the context of the actual business space with the guidance of faculty and your group projects and your group work. Sounds great. Yeah. What don't people know about Berkeley Haas that you would like them to know? Perhaps a common misconception that you would like to dispel. Sure. I, I think, I know that many people find the schools using a ranking index, something along those lines. And in the rankings, one of the things that actually makes us stand out as unique is that we're among the smallest business programs in our tier. You know, top 10, top 20 schools, I think we might actually be the smallest. And sometimes there's a little ebb and flow with some of the other schools, so I don't always know. And that's on purpose because we want to build a really strong community with individuals who are connecting with one another. But if all you know about us is this, you think, well, this is a small sort of bespoke program. And ultimately, if you, you dig just that one surface level deeper, we are 
located in the heart of one of the major research institutions in the globe. Uh, and our students have the opportunity to take advantage of that, including courses outside of the business school, at the School of Public Health, even if you're not doing a joint degree, at the engineering school, arguably the top engineering school in the world, at the high school, at the law school, at the School of Public Policy. If you want to take courses with Robert Reich, you can do so. You know, this is all in the field of opportunity for our students. And that, I think, is this incredible information exchange. It's also incredible that you're connecting into that network. You know, you, you know, the joke here is, you know, once you're Berkeley, you're Berkeley for life, right? You know, like the mafia, you can't get out. <laughs> this is part of your history forever. But it isn't just Berkeley Haas and the 50,000 alumni that are connected in that community. It's Berkeley writ large and the half a million alum in that community. That's your network. And that oftentimes gets lost because we talk about our, our our corner of campus, but it's the whole campus that our students have access to. So you have the intimacy of the small business school, but backed by this major research, a very large, it, it is the largest UC campus, I believe, isn't it? It is the largest UC campus. It's it is 30,000 total. Yeah. And it's oftentimes ranked the number one public institution in the globe. Right, right. In preparing for the call, I was reviewing the required core curriculum at, at Berkeley Haas. And I was struck by the number of classes devoted to both analytics, kind of quantitative side, and communications. So you're kind of developing and working and exercising both sides of the brain, yeah. I guess. And indeed, business requires, you know, quant jocks and leadership, which involves communication, listening, teamwork skills, all that. So is that intentional? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Absolutely. Uh, so one of the things that I, I think we pride ourselves on is that we are educating for the pace of change. The job that you came in to potentially pursue two years ago may not even be here two years from now. That's the pace at which the world is changing. And what's important for us is to make sure that every student coming through our program has the core and foundational skills to be a leader and to be a successful leader in any industry vertical, in any job function. And for that to happen, we need to make sure that that core foundation exists. I know that there are other schools who choose different models. Some have a more of a choose your own adventure model where you can really narrow in into one specific area. And we do give you that opportunity to take advantage of the elective coursework here, but not before we establish a strong foundation, which I think puts our students in the exact best position to be able to pivot and adjust to a world that is constantly changing. That's for sure. Speaking of constant change, one of the things that is changing dramatically is testing and admissions. Yep. So, you know, you have the GMAT, the GMAT Focus, the GRE, which now has a shorter GRE. They're required at this time by Haas. Is there any thought to expand the number of tests that you will accept, allow for test waivers or go test optional? There is a comment, the writing sample component is required, but the GMAT focus doesn't have a writing requirement. Mm -hmm. So how are you dealing with all this change, this kind of change that's kind of right in your basket? Yeah, it's a great question to ask. Uh, I'll start, Linda, by saying I actually am in support of the changes to the GMAT, the GMAT focus, and the changes to the GRE. I think the testing agencies have heard that they need to be more applicant-focused. They need to be leaning into what the applicants need in order to succeed. We don't want the testing Survive. agencies to become gatekeepers <laughs> right. of great talent that doesn't reach us in the business school universe. Yeah. At the same time, we have to understand that there is a significant amount of academic rigor in our core coursework, and we need to make sure that the students who come through are going to be successful. So we do need 
measuring sticks. We do need benchmarks. So where do we land with this world of uh, ever-changing testing landscape and the need for a level of consistency? So the way our team operates is we don't actually evaluate individual application components and then weight them. Because there's, you know, how do you weight the GMAT versus the GMAT focus versus the new GRE versus the old GRE? If, you know, certain schools are taking the EA or any number of other testing. GMAT, DAT, yeah. LSAT. It's oh, a whole alphabet soup yeah. of and possibilities. It, and it, I, and at, one point, at some point, you have to ask yourselves, if you are, if you're taking a test that doesn't cover the material, what is the value to the school? I, I don't want to go too deep into that section. What instead I will talk about is what we're doing. Okay. And what we are doing is we have a set of competencies that we're looking for within our evaluative process. One of those competencies includes demonstrated ability to handle the academic rigor of our core. And that demonstrated ability, that can show up in your testing, but it can also show up in your undergraduate performance. It could also show up in your professional journey. And because we're taking that lens, it allows us to then think about these pieces from their actual value components. I'm not interested in the fact that a GMAT score on the old GMAT is 720, and the concordance tables tell you that in the GMAT focus, it's a 655. And what does a 655 mean versus a 720? It's, it's meaningless. These are these numbers in air. Uh, what I am interested in is what is your percentile score on the specific quantitative piece of that? Does that suggest that you will be able to handle the rigor of our core? And if that's not on the GMAT, I'm also going to look at the GRE. Maybe it exists there. And if it doesn't exist there, maybe it exists within your undergraduate performance. Maybe the last three years you've been working as a data analyst. And that's where I'm going to see the strength of your skill and ability is. And I, I'm not going to say that one carries more weight than the other. I'm looking for evidence. You know, And, and this is the, the, the dad joke corny bit of my story, where the admissions office, the goal is to admit, we're not the deny office. That's right. how we say that's the financial aid office. That's the, the joke. Our, <laughs> but, uh, our focus is on finding evidence in your application that allows us to admit you. And it can exist in a lot of different places. So summarize, I, I'm in support of any testing agency that's going to be applicant focused, that's going to be delivering content that's useful to the applicants in order for them to succeed. Shorter tests sounds like a great way to stop them from being the gatekeepers that potentially they have been in the past. And for us to receive the most number of qualified applicants or interested applicants that allow us to engage with them meaningfully and all the aspects of their application. Any obstacles we can reduce, I'm in favor of, but I do think that we still need points of evidence to understand the student's journey. Well said, thank you. Now, going back to one, one question I, I had in the last question, there is a comment in that the writing sample component is required but the GMAT focus doesn't have a writing requirement. So will applicants be asked to provide some other writing sample or is it just going to be their essays? How is that? Or are you going to remove that comment from the site? I mean, what's going to happen with that? Sure. So, you know, we've explored that a little bit. The writing section, the AWA section of the GMAT, yeah. I believe is it's provided in sort of a raw score format for us, as well as an opportunity for us to understand a little bit more about their background. We have writing components within our application. We right. have the ability to look for those strength areas. So the that piece of the puzzle, once that disappears from the overall submission, yeah. You're okay. We we will backfill because again, it's not a based on application elements. It's based on competencies. So within okay. those competency structures, we're going to look for the pieces that we do have, 
And uh, one, one thing I'm actually really excited for, Linda, hopefully I'm not preempting a question, is some of the new things that we've brought into this ecosystem, including our video essay. Is that, is that okay for me to, to talk a little Please bit Please go that? ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. One of the things that we looked at was, what are the challenges to people submitting an application? What are we learning from these pieces of the application? And what can we shift and move around? So one of the things is, and I think a lot of schools have this, they have two or three bespoke essays. Uh, it's, it's unique enough and clever enough that you can't cut and paste the other school's essay into our essay. Uh, we really want you to think about us. And is that a benefit to the evaluative process or is that simply another hurdle or obstacle to the applicant? And so we took a close look at what we were doing. We turned one of our essays into a career goal statement. A career goal statement is, it, it does not need to be unique to Berkeley. It can be, it does not need to be. Theoretically, what you're looking to do isn't going to change dramatically by the schools. that You're going to fit the schools to your journey, not the other way around. That's probably a best fit for candidates to fit the schools mm -hmm. to their journey and not the other way around. So that piece will stay static. We have our live essay. We love our live essay. This is an essay that gives us an understanding yeah. of what the student is. That, that is custom to, uh, yeah. to Haas. And that's a that's our personal statement. That's our way to get to know who are you as an applicant. We want to know you. We want to understand how you're going to show up as a student. We're going to, we're going to imagine you in our ecosystem. We love that piece of the puzzle. And then we understood that there was this question that we often got asked. Where do I tell you about Berkeley? Where do I tell you that I love Berkeley? And, and what I, we didn't want to see was shoehorning in of a list of courses. Somewhere in the application, I'm going to put a list of courses to show you that I read your website. So we thought, what was valuable to us? And, and Linda, you brought it up at the start of this podcast. What was, that, what was valuable to us is our defining leadership principles. What does it mean to be a leader? How do you think about leadership? How do, you, how do you engage with these principles? So we thought we'd give a place for students to do that, prospective students to do that, but a place where they didn't have to sit down and write a whole long thing and you know try and you know cut and paste the mission statement from our website and adjust it chat GPT it or all the rest of the things that people could do, we wanted an honest in engagement with the topic. And so what we did is we stood up a video, we're calling it a video introduction. It's 90 seconds to two minutes. We're not asking for a prepared speech. Tell us in a sentence about you and then pick a defining leadership principle that's meaningful to you and, and engage with it a little bit. Now, the, I, I, I don't wanna have people be nervous about this. So I'll be very honest with the rubric on the other end is we're, judging your understanding of our culture, one of our culture forward pieces, our defining leadership principle. We're also paying attention to your business communication skills. That's it. This is the one, two piece of that whole puzzle. Doesn't matter. We're not, we're not interested in language skills in this regard. We're not interested in how you present. You don't need to be in a suit and tie for this. This is simply an understanding of who you are as an individual, one to two sentences. And here's this thing about us. We wanna know that you know who we are as an institution. Tell us in a sentence or two about it. All right. And I know a lot of the video essays, I'm you know, talking about other schools now, they are assessing the applicant's presence and poise, but you just said that's not what this is about. So one of the things that's really important to us is that we don't use simple disqualifiers. Okay. But a simple disqualifier would be, oh, well, that room is messy. Or, well, they, did, they, they didn't think to put on a tie. Or... Uh, we've got we've got normative understandings of what presentation should be, you know. That, that's those yeah. are disqualifiers that are not based in your ability to succeed in the program. Now, communication skills is so. Can you articulate a point clearly? That will matter okay. to us. Okay. Uh, but not your. 
I think presence has a, it's a, that's a bit of a gray area and we don't mm -hmm. ever want to be in the disqualifying business. Okay. Okay. Again, it's an admissions office, not a declining office, right? Yeah, exactly. It's okay. corny, but it's true. I mean, I think it's a perspective. I mean, on, on some level, while you say you, you know, you don't want the test to be gatekeepers, on some level, you are a gatekeeper. And while I, I know you want to be in the admissions business, in the yeah. end, you have many more applicants than you can admit. This is true. So, you know, I, we, get, I get the focus. I get, I understand what you're saying, but there is yeah. a, you know, a numerical component to this. I, I, I concede the point. It's true. Right. Now, you know, you've talked and emphasized, and we've discussed Haas's four principles as kind of exemplifying, epitomizing the culture and values of, of Berkeley Haas. Do you want to, and, and obviously the video essay asks people to discuss one of those principles that really resonates with them. Do you want to see evidence of all four values in, in the application? Or are you willing to admit people who are open to perhaps in considering the values and having them inculcated? I'm sure you want some identification, but is it is it important that all four be present? So I don't see the four as as, as truly being independent ideas, okay. ultimately. Uh, questioning the status quo is about a, a mindset of curiosity. Mm -hmm. uh, confidence with that attitude has a lot to do with curiosity of others, wanting to hear what they have to say and making space for them. Student always is about is also a curiosity, curiosity. frame, right? And yeah. going beyond yourself is a curiosity of what matters to others. There's lots of different through lines and themes within these. These are not independent for independent ideas. Humility. Right? Humility is very much a part of all of those pieces as yes, well, right? Yes. The uh, the ability to understand that maybe somebody else has something else to bring, the the fact that you recognize that you have more to learn, I all of these they they're ultimately through lines that give us an understanding of the core characteristics of the student. So I don't need you to itemize. That I think is uh, you know don't give me a list of the seven ways in which you X in which you right. are right. different or or beyond. Show X right. Show yeah. principle one. Show principle two. Show right. Yeah, don't that, do that. That's not don't do that. No. Yeah. No, that'll that'll come out a little forced, anyways. What's the most common mistake you see applicants making in their applications? So generally speaking, and this is a I, this is going to be one of those uh, those answers that I don't think is satisfying to a lot of folks. I think there's a moment in time when students decide that they want to pursue business education at this level when they have an idea in their head, and that idea tends to be their most authentic version of what they want to explore. Then they go ahead and they attend an information session and they get a piece of advice and then they talk to somebody else and they get a piece of additional advice and someone says, we well, use this format or use this structure or use these other pieces. And the finished product, if it looks markedly different from the initial idea, I think there's a loss there. And I know that that's, how do you, how do you solve for that? Because you do have to refine your work and you do have to bring your best work forward, but it's, and this is the one that's always difficult because all of our us admissions folks say it. They say, be authentic. Be authentic to that moment. How can you be authentic while also being polished, while also being these things? And I think really the, the piece of advice I would give is to be mindful of that. It's to be mindful of that original idea because that's, that's the reason to reinvest in yourself, to take two years out of the workforce if you're pursuing a full-time program, to you know, not only not earn money for two years, but also spend money during those two years, which puts your finances in a deficit in most cases, potentially taking on loans. You know, it's a it's a risk. 
And you, you chose to pursue this journey because something, some moment, whether it can be pointed to as a pivotal inflection point in life or whether it was a slow accumulation of ideas, there's came a point in time where you were tilted. And you said, yes, right. I'm going to pursue this. That there, that's the most, to me, the most powerful thing that you can deliver to an admissions office. And those get massaged and they get formatted and they get layered. And someone says, well, I know that you want to change the world, but if you just wrote that you were wanted to be a consultant, you'll get in. You know, they get <laughs> modified away. And for those people who hold on to that little nugget, that's that's gold in an admissions office because we we can see it. It, it resonates because then it carries through. There's echoes throughout the application in in the in the journey if it has a meaning. Uh, I know I'm, I'm up here in the woo woo, woo space, but it's, no, no, it's much easier to be enthusiastic about something you genuinely believe in. Yeah, and that comes through in your writing. It comes through in your interview, to be sure. It might come through probably in the video if you're genuinely enthusiastic about something, as opposed to just making something up. It can't really be agree. faked. It can't and, be. And faked. I will tell you, Linda, that this is not advice that ends at the application stage. Of course. This is this becomes the story of how you network with the students that you, you that you share the space with. This becomes the story that when you attend a speaker series and you wait afterwards to chat up the speaker, that if you've got something powerful and exciting to talk about, they're gonna remember you. And if you're into the workforce and you're starting, you, you know, you're trying to secure that summer internship, it's going to be the thing that's ex that's passionate and exciting. And when right. you're, you know, at the other end and you're looking to settle in that first job, and when you realize that that first job isn't going to get you where you want to go because the real value of the MBA is lifetime, right? It really doesn't show up till four or five years when you end, end up in the C-suite. This journal is going to carry you through the whole way or the enthusiasm behind it. Right, right. Now you started out, you didn't start out, but you certainly mentioned very early on in the interview, artificial intelligence and chat GPT. And obviously Berkeley is a leader in that. What about applicants using it? Good question. I think I've gone on the journey that a lot of my peers have gone on. And the first piece of this journey was, well, I hope our fraud software can catch it. And I think, I think a lot of the world has gone on this journey with us where, you know, you stop and then you say, well, this is, this is a tool. This is a tool like the calculator is a tool. I think that's probably the common thread I've heard. If you're, you know, it's, I've already had, you know, typing in an email and I'm getting suggested next three sentences. This is, this is where we are. The tool exists. You know, I, I am still going to suggest that there's no tool that's going to tell me your career goals. Now that tool might help you articulate those career goals a little bit better, uh, but those goals still have to be yours. Uh, there's no tool that's going to tell me the the moment that made you feel alive or why it gave meaning to you. It may, it may be that that tool helps you frame your thoughts, put those pieces together in a way that that's cohesive. If you're if you're if English is not your first language, and you're trying to organize your thoughts in a way that would give you the 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 tools to succeed, it could very well be that this is a really useful tool to organize. But those core thoughts have to be yours. I think that's key here. And I don't think that, that we're going to move on that, that concept. But those core thoughts and ideas have to be yours. And then if you're going to use the tool, I hope that you use it well. I hope that you that the, the maybe the thing you're demonstrating to me is your expertise in the use of the tool. Because I will, and we have seen already, poorly framed and poorly worded things that don't really seem to capture the individual. Right. Uh, this is probably the first year that we're starting to see that. That makes sense that this is the first year you're seeing it. I, I've played with it a little bit. 
if they, and I've said this before on the podcast, if you use it blindly, you're going to produce drivel, very generic and not very meaningful. If you use it either to edit your work, perhaps to generate some ideas or to help you structure an essay, but the ideas are your own, perhaps it has value, but you're still going to spend a significant amount of time on it. Well, so you, should, you yeah. might, yeah. Or you see, you might as well just write the thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm one of those folks that believes the magic happens in the editing. I know other people think it happens in the writing, which is the idea generation. I think it's the moment where you come back and say, oh, well, now I see how those pieces should fit together. And so with, with that in mind, I understand that the tool may be used. We have a, a statement at the bottom of our application. We haven't changed it. We've had it for a while. It says every, you know, the work product seen here is, is mine and mine alone. I think folks should be able to answer that honestly. The work okay. product here is mine and mine alone. Now, right. if that means that they used a tool to take their ideas and put it on paper, and then they reorganized it to reflect the story that they wanted to tell, and they feel that that is theirs, you know, they were the producer of the ideas. They were the producer of the of the finished product. They used an intermediary tool, the same way you might use a spell checker or a grammar checker. You know, I'm going to have to just accept that that's the world that we're in today. I don't think there's okay. any magical tool that solves that one yet. You know, generative AI is probably the best tool to catch generative AI. Probably. But I am, I'm going to focus on the content. And okay. as long as the content's strong, I think that that's going to be in the candidate's best interest. Switching gears again. Can you touch for a minute on the Accelerated Access Admissions Program at Berkeley Haas? Who is it for? How can one get in? And it was brand new when we last spoke. Have, has any of the earlier deferred MITs matriculated yet at Berkeley mm -hmm. Haas? Yes, they have. Okay, so okay. let's let's go. Uh, a lot of questions right all now. Of those <laughs> uh, so what is the Accelerated Access Program? The Accelerated Access Program is a deferred enrollment program here at Berkeley Haas. It is geared for people in their graduating year of undergraduate or graduate school if they did not have more than one full year of work experience in between. Right. So this is a pre-experience application focused on folks who are completing their academic journeys and who are committed to going to professional life for two to five years, that's typically the window of time, for them to gain experience in the world, but to want to get that application admission early, right? They want their, they, this is the time when they're their best test takers usually, because they're still in their academic space. Oftentimes, this is where they can uh, lock in a future opportunity. Maybe that safety net allows them to take the other job. And I was going to take the two-year consulting stint, but... I've locked in an admission to a top business school. I'm going to join the robotics startup. And I'm, that's not a random example. That's an example of somebody who did, in fact, do that. That's what that's who this is for. It's for somebody who is certain that business school is in their future, who um, is going to be strong academically. I'll, I'll, I'll put that out there in front. We have fewer application components, so we're going to have to look for our competencies across the limited amount of things that you have to offer. So probably heavier weight on... Uh, undergraduate performance, standardized testing, internships, uh, extracurricular activity within your experiences there. Those are going to be the pieces of the puzzle that are useful for us. We are traveling the globe with a member of my team, Verse Gabrielle, who's out there talking about accelerated access. We've gotten into a little consortium with a couple of other business schools so that we can make the most value in the delivery of this content so that we are in front of folks with a, with a, a sampling. And they can pick which of, the, of all the deferred admit programs. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's a uh, it just started this year. I'm really excited to 
to actually see what campus recruitment looks like for the MBA in this context. In terms of the other part of your question, what does it look like for those students who matriculated? We matriculated seven in this oh, incoming wow. class. So that's um, the first one. The first, first, first set coming through. That makes sense. Just judging yeah. by again, you know, timeless elapsed. Yeah, two of them uh, ended up in some profiles that we put out into the world, so you can actually see okay. some of the journeys for these students. I thought it would be really valuable as we shared profiles with other media outlets that we included people who had this type of journey to see how it looked a little bit different and how they navigated the experience. And I think that it they complete and total fit with the program. There's not they're not outliers. They don't they don't sit outside the experience. Uh, in some cases, because they've been engaged with the admissions office and the and the school for three plus years before they got to campus, they were fully onboarded by the time they got here. They were the best student ambassadors on day one. Wow. But it's been a wonderful experience to be able to actually reach people at this different point in time in their lives. You know, to, to be fair to uh, those people who've been in the professional life, you've had a chance to test a couple hypotheses, figure out what works, what doesn't. These students, they kind of read as all potential. Yeah, they they blue sky a lot. I can do anything. I can do all these things. And we watch them crystallize the idea over the two, three year time before they get to campus. What a great journey for us in the admissions office to be able to watch them sure. grow into the MBA candidate and then uh, go from there. How many students are you admitting every year through the accelerated MBA? So it's going to vary based on application volume. Sure. Uh, primarily, we want to be sure that we are giving sort of an equal probability each year to candidates who apply and also being mindful of like, how we want to balance the class coming on the other end. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's been somewhere around 20. Okay. In that window of, of space, you know, again, we're a small program and we don't want to overwhelm right. uh, when students come through and they could, they have different entry points, right? Anytime yeah, you don't really students, know what year they're going to yeah, enter. Yeah, between two and five years. So there's different entry points for those students, depending on when they're ready. We have a, a student who's most certainly going to go the full five because they are in the midst of building something really unique and then they'll come join us. We got somebody who was ready after two and they really were ready after two. They had done what they needed to do to put themselves in the best position to succeed. In this particular case, it was in the food and agriculture sustainability side. And so it's going to be unique to the individual. Right. Fascinating. Well, thank yeah. you very much. No now way. you've given tons of advice in the course of this interview, but what advice would you give to someone thinking about applying now? They want to matriculate in 2024 they're mm -hmm. probably in the middle of the process. They probably didn't submit round one. They're aiming for round two. What should what should they be doing? What should they be thinking about now as they listen to this podcast? Sure. Uh, so I, I'll, I'll put two things out there. Now, the first okay. is that they don't over invest in application elements and they focus on the whole story. Uh, this has been my my message the whole podcast, but sure. I really do believe that you know if you hyper focus on the test or you hyper focus on some other aspect of the application, you miss the opportunity to share a bit more about your whole journey. What's the narrative? What are you hoping to accomplish? You know, what community do you want to serve? What uh, problem do you want to solve? You know, these are the 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 bigger questions that I really want to understand about the candidate. The other thing is, there's members of myself, my admissions team, we're all here to answer these questions. We're here to support people in this journey. And we have a really robust community of student support. So not just for our program, but for any program, reach out and see if you can connect with the students. I think that's one of the most valuable things. It has two pieces. The first is 
they successfully navigated our application process. So they may have interesting things to say about what should be in a, in a strong application. And the second is they're actually experiencing the experience that you're looking for. What does the student experience look like? What does on-campus life look like? Are faculty approachable? Are the things that you're learning valuable for you? What type of speakers come to campus? How often are you getting to connect with industry outside of your campus community? All of those questions are questions that can be answered. And in particular, our setup with our student ambassadors is that they are the go-betweens. So they are available if you want to ask them a question, but if you want to ask something very specific, like I'm really interested in understanding about how climate and finance interact, and I'm looking to talk to somebody specifically who understands that context in a certain part of the world. Like we may have that pathway for you. So you can speak to somebody like Arno, one of our second year students who actually just spoke to a Belgian newspaper about his climate finance journey. You know, these really unique pieces that, that um, they seem niche, but there may actually be somebody doing that. And so ask it. We may be able to put you in touch with exactly that right person. Okay, great. Now let's let's look a little bit further ahead. What advice would you give someone thinking ahead to a fall 2024 or fall 2025 application? They're not part of the Accelerated Access Program, but they do know that they want to go for an MBA and they're thinking seriously about pursuing that MBA at Berkeley Haas. I think the first thing to do is to really crystallize why you want an MBA. And so before you're thinking about what do I need to do to get into an MBA program, you're going to want to have a really strong narrative for what I want to do when I come out of an MBA program. Right. What do I want to accomplish? With, and I, I know I'm repeating myself, but what do you want to see beyond that? And it's not just at grad. Right. I will tell you that uh, every stinking ranking and survey out there is going to focus on what does it look like at grad or three months past graduation. And that's not where the value of an MBA kicks in. Right. If you look at, you know, I'm not going to throw rankings out there because I've been digging on them all day. But if you think about what are the frameworks for some of the strongest rankings, uh, they're around what, do you, what does it look like four or five years out? What is yeah. not just compensation, but what is your your position within the organization. What what are you able to actually change about the world based on your level? And that happens four or five years out. So that's the part of the story that we want to work back from. And then understand, okay, now I know what I want to achieve or I know what, what I want to engage with. And I think I have a, a sense of what that journey is going to look like post-MBA. What do I need during the MBA to get there? And then what do I need? to get in to an MBA program? What are the pieces there? Because if that's a if that's a clear narrative all the way through, you know, it just it carries so much more weight. It has a lot more value. It has the value of being true and authentic to what the student wants to accomplish. And yes, there's going to be a lot of work in putting together an application. But if you know your story, then it's just about putting the pieces together. Right. Two, two comments. I frequently advise applicants that that post-MBA goal, and I I'm usually talking about the immediate post MBA goal, but I do agree completely that it, there should be a longer, a longer vision because the the cost is high and the payoff has to to justify it. That mm -hmm. I refer to that as the north star. It should just guide you. It should guide you in the school you choose, the program you choose. Maybe it's not an MBA. Maybe it's a different program. The schools you choose to apply to, the schools you ultimately choose to attend. The courses you take, the things you get in, involved in, yes, it can evolve. Of course, it can evolve. 
my goodness, at 25, you don't have to be locked locked into a, yeah. a, a profession. That's that'd be 28, whatever, 30 even. You don't have to be locked in. That's that's one point, uh, just in support of yours. And the other other point is, I got my MBA, and uh, for a variety of reasons, I don't really think I started using it and, and really getting value out of it till 14, 15 years later. It's just how my my life worked. Yeah. Now, I did not pursue the the typical, the traditional MBA path, certainly not at that time, but I'm glad I got it. It just took a while for it to pay off for me. Yeah. So um, anyway, just a, a couple of points there. And what about reapplicants? Do you have any pearls of wisdom for reapplicants? Well, I'll start with the fact that the data that we have suggests that reapplicants have a higher rate of admission than candidates who are applying in the first round out. Mm-hmm. And, and so why is that? Like. Part of the reason is you've had a chance to really think about what are the strengths and where are my areas of growth and how I might focus on my areas of growth. Now, because of the volume of applications we receive, we're not able to give direct feedback to candidates who don't get in in the first pass. But what we are always able to do is engage with people who are applying this year, whether they can sign up to a Q&A session. Uh, most of this is available both in person and virtually so that there's uh, there's an opportunity to connect with us no matter where you are within the globe. And you can ask questions about the forward piece. And you have the benefit of actually having a foundation that you can build on, right? Again, back to the idea that the magic happens in the editing. Like, I've, okay, I've done it once. I know where I can tweak, where I can adjust, where I can change. Uh, the biggest miss is when reapplicants don't tell us what they've been doing since the last application. You've got another year around the sun. What have you accomplished? Have you have you leveled up within your professional journey? I mean, sometimes the updated resume will tell us a little bit about that, but like, have you refined your your goals? Have you explored more and different opportunities to test some hypotheses and, and rethink some of your journey? These are all really valuable to us. And and then of course we we should you know speak plainly. We're also looking for evidence of your ability to do well in the program. If you think that that was the area of growth, the first submission, then other evidence. Now, you can't go and change a, an undergraduate journey. That, that's that's typically fully baked by the time you apply. But you can take graded short courses. You can show us, you can demonstrate other places where you've shown that you can succeed when it comes to the academic component of the application process. Great advice. I think the saddest thing is when a reapplicant comes to me and says, you know, I know it was my GMAT score. So I retook the GMAT. I got a much higher score, but my essays were great. I'm not going to change them at all. That makes me sad. Yeah. There's so much opportunity there. Exactly. And like you said, I'm I'm not joking. That does happen. Um, I'm sure you sometimes see those applications. You're showing little initiative. Yes, you studied for and you got your higher GMAT. Okay, great. You're not showing what you did in the past year. You're not showing any growth whatsoever. And you are demonstrating a certain laziness and lack of commitment to the process. So don't do it. <laughs> bottom line. So I, I'm going to both agree with you and slightly disagree, Linda. Okay, I, go I, ahead. I, I will agree with you. Uh, I would love to see folks who, uh, who are making those levels of commitment. I don't always call it laziness. I think sometimes folks don't have a full understanding of the process. I think folks who engage okay. with you, they're getting the benefit of your knowledge. Those who engage with us get the benefit of ours. Those who are operating out there independently, they may not know that they're missing a great opportunity. Hopefully those listening on this line, if you know somebody else who's applying and 
doesn't know this, share this, share this message along. Okay. Sounds good. I'll be, I'll be kinder next time. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) What would you have liked me to ask you? Sure. I think one of the, one of the challenges that we face here in Berkeley is that we are, we've done really well in some spaces and we, in some corners of the market, we're known for these one or two things. Well, Berkeley is really great in the tech sector uh, because look at their access, you know, a third of their students go into tech or Berkeley is really great in the entrepreneurial sector. You know, according to PitchBook, there's only three programs at the top and it's, you know, uh, Stanford, Harvard and Berkeley or, you know, Berkeley is really great in the sustainability space. No other school is doing five different sustainability topics. But we also second most place students into consulting, third most place students into finance uh, when it comes to our finance students, the number of students who end up in internships on the West Coast, we top all other schools in that space. You know, we're yeah. a great school for a lot of different things. When I was looking back and thinking about what are we going to talk about with 125 years worth of history here, you know, technology sector doesn't go back 125 years. What, what's been sustaining the school this entire time? What's the common thread? Really is that we've been educating for the pace of change. The world keeps changing and we want to make sure that people are prepared for that. And that hits in all sectors. And so I would love for people to know that about the program, not to put us in a little corner, but if you're interested in a topic and you didn't think Berkeley was that, come find out. Maybe it is. Right. All right. Eric, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This has been delightful and highly informative. Where can listeners and potential applicants learn more about Haas's full-time MBA program? Absolutely. So the easiest thing to do is uh, mba.com. Haas, H-A-A-S dot Berkeley dot E-D-U. Come check us out. Uh, once you land on that page, there's a lot of resources that'll put you in a lot of different places. I would encourage you to go to the events section because you'll get an opportunity to see all the different places that we are in the globe, as well as all the different things that we do virtually. So no matter where you are in the world, you can get a connection to our community. More great advice. Thank you again. We're going to include links in the show notes at accepted.com slash 547 to the site that Eric just mentioned, as well as to related articles and interviews. They're all going to be linked to from accepted.com slash 547. Listener, thank you too for joining Eric Askins and me for our 547th episode. If you find the show worthwhile, please subscribe. Make sure you don't miss any future shows, be they with admissions directors, professors, current students, test prep pros, or alumni doing great things. Quick reminder, don't miss the MBA ROI calculator. Find out how much your MBA investment could benefit you financially. Use the MBA calculator for free at exhibit.com slash MBA ROI calc. Again, that's MBA ROI C-A-L-C. Thanks again for coming. This is Admission Straight Talk produced by Accepted and I am your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week. 